Hi, friends, and welcome to the Robcast. This is Robcast 49, and it's called God Part 2. And uh, we're going to be talking about God and what we talk about when we talk about God and uh, all sorts of ground to cover. But real quickly, uh, December 17th, we are going to be filming Everything is Spiritual, making the new Everything is Spiritual film. I'd love it if you came. We'll be filming right here in Los Angeles, actually in Santa Monica. And uh, there's still some tickets left. You can get all that info at uh, robbell.com. Also, December 21st, doing a Christmas show at Largo Club here in Los Angeles. And, um, oh my word, it's going to be so much fun. So uh, you can get all the info for that at largo-la.com, or you can get it through my site. And then December, still some spaces available for um, doing three different events. One for artists and communicators on the creative process. One for spiritual leaders and the unique challenges of being a pastor, priest, uh, leader. And then um, one for people in business, so entrepreneurs, uh, people in healthcare, people in law, um, those of you who work in finance, um, talking about spirituality and work and faith and ambition and family and all of the big stuff. When do you stay where you are? And when do you go and start something new? And all of those questions that so many of us uh, love to talk about. So those are all things going on, and you can get all that info at robbell.com. Now, uh, I want to talk about God some more, and I want you to see things on a continuum. So what I want to do is I want to show you two different stories in the Bible and I want to show you what's going on just below the surface, and I want you to see that the very ways in which we wrestle with the biggest questions about the very nature of reality are ways that people have been wrestling and struggling with these questions for literally thousands of years. So first off, whether you read the Bible or not, whether you find um, the Bible compelling or not, whether you think it's a primitive barbaric book that's stuck way in the past and it's part of the problem, or whether you believe it's the you know, word of God and it's inspired, wherever you are in that, I want you to see these stories as existing on a continuum, as an unfolding story. So first we're going to go early in the story, and then we're going to skip ahead to later in the story, and we're going to ask, what were people struggling with? What was happening in and around them? What were the conditions they were living in? And how do your conditions, your struggles, the people that you are surrounded with, how does that affect how you understand this idea, thing, being, concept that gets called God? Because everything is a dynamic changing reality. That's how the universe is. So when you think about your own spirituality, your own conceptions about how you see the world, what you believe, what guides you, what comforts you, what gives you strength and hope, we are dynamic, changing, evolving people. And we are in the process of becoming something because we each have a story that's essentially unfolding. So whenever you think about history or you read the scriptures, we start by reading it like an unfolding story. So first I wanna show you a story in Egypt, which you may have heard, but I wanna show you some things in it you may not have seen. 
And then after we look at a story from ancient Egypt, we're going to look at a story from a place called Lystra. And I want you to see what happens between Egypt and Lystra. So that's what we're going to look at, simply two stories, what happens in Egypt and then what happens in Lystra. And we're going to ask the question, what happens in between those two? Now, there's a story early in the Bible. It's the second book in the Bible. It's the book of Exodus. It's a story about a shepherd named Moses. Moses is a Hebrew, and his people are in slavery in Egypt. And there's this story about Moses, and he comes across a bush that's burning, and he hears a voice speaking to him. And what the voice says to him at one point is the divine voice, I have heard my people's cry. And I am concerned for their suffering, and I am going to rescue them. I have heard their cry, I am concerned for their suffering, and I am going to rescue them. Now, why did this story of a shepherd named Moses, whose people were enslaved, and he has this encounter where he hears from the divine, from God, who tells him, I've heard their cry, I'm concerned for their suffering, and I'm going to rescue you slaves. Why did people tell this story? Well, if you're a slave, what questions does your slavery raise about the very nature of reality? Because these Hebrews were enslaved by Pharaoh, who was a ruler of Egypt, and Pharaoh was believed essentially to be like a representative of God on earth, somewhere between the divine and the human. So this oppression, this slavery, was backed by uh, a ruler who was backed by a god or god or a system, a religious system. So if you're a slave, the question is, whose side is God on? Because at that time, people thought of things in very magical, mythical terms. Everything was happening because the gods were at work, and what happens here in this realm was the sort of the echo of a larger sound, which is the gods at work. So that's how people saw things thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. Now, people conquered and then they ruled in the name of their gods. So if you're a slave, is God on the side of your master? Is that simply the order of the universe? If somebody has their boot on your neck, if somebody is making your life a living hell, Do the deepest forces of the universe support this? Is God fine with suffering and abuse and the degrading of humanity? Is that okay in the divine order of things? So this story, can you see why this story was a powerful story? Because this story said, no, God is not fine with this. God has heard the cry. This story said that God is on the side of the poor, the hungry, the needy, and slaves. This story said God is for the underdog. Do you see why slaves in Egypt would have told this story? It's a story about hope, hope, hope. See, nobody has an idea about God in a vacuum. All theology is personal. When somebody says something to you like, well, I'm just giving you the objective truth about God, come on. How we think about these things is deeply, 
deeply shaped about who we are, who we interact with, what kind of world we're living in, whether we've experienced goodness and favor and blessing or abuse and abandonment. These slaves in captivity were moved by this story because it said something about the nature of power. It said that power, particularly exploitive, abusive power, the kind that would make slaves work day after day after day, that all power is temporary and that God bends towards the poor, the hungry, the needy, the slave. So later, after these people are rescued and they're brought out of slavery and they're forming a new kind of people, what is one of the central laws of these people? They're given a whole series of laws, but one of them is never forget the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant among you. Essentially, whenever there's somebody on the underside, look out for them, care for them, because in doing this, you will not forget your own story because you were once slaves. See, when people talk about the Old Testament, be old, you know, the violent God of the Old Testament, Yes, there's lots and lots of violence passages. Yes, there's lots of horrific, will even look like genocide passages. Yes, yes, of course, all those people were very violent, of course. And people believed that their gods were violent and that their gods called them to kill other people. Yes, that's how people saw things back then. It should not shock us that in an ancient, ancient cultures where people believe that their gods told them to go conquer other people and kill all the women and children in the name of their God, it shouldn't surprise us that an ancient book like the Bible has stories like that, correct? This shouldn't be that surprising that the Bible reflects the culture that it comes from. What it also does is you get little glimmers of a whole new consciousness. So at this time, the idea of a God who is for the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the slave was an extraordinary, radical, revolutionary new idea. There's a birth of a new idea here right there in the midst of all that violence, death, and destruction. Now, the reason why I talked about an unfolding trajectory is think about your life. Do you believe everything that you believed exactly like you believe it 10 years ago, 15 years ago? 20 years ago. No, you believe some new things that are better, that are more highly evolved, intelligent, compassionate, whatever language you want to use for it. But when you had these new ideas, did you suddenly become a perfect person with no other weird edges or quirks or strange habits? No. Or destructive tendencies or addictions? No. You have consistently had these moments when you woke up, right? When you saw things in a new way, when you realized, I don't wanna be like that anymore, I wanna be like this. But it didn't happen overnight automatically. So when you see the stories of the scripture, you are searing, seeing your own story, any individual human story, just on a larger communal scale. So this Exodus story, and a lot of people believe that Genesis is like the prologue, that the story of the rescue from slavery is the fundamental, it's like the opening, it's like how the Bible, it's the story that kicks the Bible in gear. 
and that Genesis is actually the prologue because the question is, well, how did these people end up slaves? Oh, you got to go back and you got to have a story to explain how they got there, which is Genesis. So a lot of people see that the defining moment sort of kicks the whole Hebrew story in gear is these slaves who bring this new idea about the divine into human history, a divine who bends towards those who are oppressed, poor, hungry, thirsty, and enslaved. By the way, when Martin Luther King Jr. quoted uh, Theodore Parker about the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. He's uh, borrowing, he's pulling from this very story because that's the question when you're being kicked around. That's the question when you're the victim of injustice. That's the question when somebody is got their boot on your neck. The question is, are the deepest forces of the universe okay with this? Or are they not okay with this? And is this always like it's going to be? Or is there going to be liberation, rescue, salvation? See, one of the pointed questions of the story is, how are you going to use your power? How are you going to use your wealth? How are you going to use your influence? Are you going to use whatever power, wealth, and influence you have that's the question for every single one of us. Are we going to use it to oppress others or are we going to use it to liberate those who need it the most? So that's why throughout the Hebrew scriptures, you keep having this, never forget the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant among you. Because for you to be a new kind of people in the world, you can't forget where you came from. Once you forget your own story, you're really deeply, seriously in trouble. So the question it asks, which is why the scripture has such a critique of power. It's a very unique book, the Bible, because it has this pointed critique of power. And it keeps asking the question, is this king, is this ruler, is this person, is this tribe, is this family, is this individual using whatever resource, power, wealth, and influence they have to oppress people so they can build their empire even bigger? and accumulate even more possessions, or are they using what they have to liberate and rescue others? By the way, this is the question with the playground bully. Will the bully use his or her fists to shove other kids around, to humiliate them and degrade them? Or will the bully use their strength to stand up for the weak? It's the question on Wall Street. Will all that extraordinary ability to make money simply line the pockets of a few or will it be spread around and shared and others empowered to make lives for their own from the playground to wall street this has been the question for thousands of years see your view of god and your theology your understanding of the divine is shaped by your life and so this story is about this shepherd named Moses whose people are enslaved and this divine that said this divine voice that says to him I've heard the cry and I'm going to come and I'm concerned about this suffering this is not a god who crushes others this is a god who hears and stands with them in their suffering now one more thing 
Moses is a very practical man, and he says, okay, okay, so apparently you're going to rescue these slaves. Well, suppose I go to them and I say to them uh, that you're going to rescue them. What's your name? Because remember, from God part one, we put language on the infinite, that the word God or whatever words you use for this, the divine being, source, spirit, he, she, whatever language you're using, you're putting language on the infinite. So language is incredibly helpful and it will always fail. It is so uh, necessary and ultimately can never actually get the job done, right? So there's this tension at the heart of this whole thing. Um, so, so the question, Moses, very practical man, is like, okay, if I go tell them that you're going to rescue them and you're going you're gonna to bring them out of slavery because you're the God who's the God of the oppressed, that the divine power bends towards those suffering injustice. When I go to them and I say, <laughs> what am I going to tell them your name is? Like, who do I say is going to go do this? And God's answer is, I, tell them I am who I am. <laughs> How good is that? Tell them, I am has sent you. Tell them, being itself has sent you. <laughs> so good. I mean, you come on, seriously, you have to laugh. Uh, actually, to take this story seriously, if you're not laughing, then you're not taking it seriously. It's so great because what is this is a God without boundary or edge. This is the infinite. Just tell them that being itself has sent you. And then God, then the God voice says this, tell them the Lord has sent you. Now, if you read this in an English translation, the Lord is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the Lord. In Hebrew, it's four letters, this name. Y-H-V-H, yod He va He. So it sometimes is translated Yahweh or Yahweh. Tell them Yahweh has sent you. By the way, Hebrew language doesn't really have vowels. It has consonants. The closest the Hebrew language has to vowels is the Yod, the He, and the Va. So these sounds very much are like Yod, He, Va, He. So there's this fascinating uh, mystic tradition that because the sounds Yod, He, Va sound so much like breathing that when the divine says the divine's name, the divine simply breathes breath itself the divine is as close as your breath so tell them yah they sent you oh by the way um yahweh yah is where you get like yah like reggae like yah that's all the name for god so yahshua is hebrew for god saves yah god shua saves so yahshua means Yahweh saves. So Yahshua is where you get the name Joshua, where you get the name Jesus. So when Jesus comes along and his name is Yahweh saves, that's all sort of a callback to this Exodus story. So uh, the name <laughs> God breathes, which I love. Uh, and then the divine says, this is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Okay, let me read that again because that's really, really key to this whole thing we're doing in this podcast. This, Yahweh, is my name forever. By the way, this is Exodus chapter 3. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Okay, a couple thoughts on that. First, this name, Yahweh, is what's called a covenant 
a covenantal name, a covenantal relationship, which means like an actual relationship. See, previously, of course, what the gods do is the gods crush you, and the gods are demanding, the gods are angry, and the gods bring judgment. This Yahweh is interested in a loving relationship. The ground here is not destruction, but love. Love and favor and peace and blessing, especially for those on the underside who've been kicked around and need it the most. This, my brothers and sisters, is a new idea. So every time you hear somebody talk about the violent God of the Old Testament, of course, in the Old Testament, people had violent ideas of God and the gods. Of course they did, everybody did. But right there, from the very beginning, are the seeds of a brand new, giant evolutionary leap forward in human consciousness idea about the deepest depths of the universe. Are you with me now? Come on. Oh my goodness, I just wanna high five the universe. Okay, so all of this sort of naive, simplistic, ridiculous thinking that there's nothing else in there, do we in our world today, do those with the power and wealth and resources, do you, do me, do our friends, do we use everything we have in terms of wealth, power, education, resources on behalf of those who need it the most? Or do we sometimes hoard it for ourselves and build up our own little empires? Of course. So these ideas here, we still haven't lived up to them. So we can talk about how it's an old, primitive, barbaric book full of all these ancient ideas that are irrelevant, and yet early, early on, you have enlightenment, enlightened ideals about what it means to be human community. So, and by the way, this is why throughout the Old Testament you keep having that phrase, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt is it's basically over and over again when you see that, especially in books like the book of Leviticus, which you don't read because you find them so boring. The reason why I keep saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, it is don't forget that you were once a slave and you received grace and liberation. And in everything you do, everybody you meet, don't forget the grace that you have received so that you might extend it to them. This God in this story is about actual rescue and actual redemption and release and liberation in a real world. This God is about real hope for real people enduring real suffering in a real world. So when you stand with the poor, those who are suffering, when those who are being kicked around, when you stand with somebody who's being pushed around and you say no more, when you do this, you are on God's side because God is on the side of the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the slave. Now, how are we doing so far? Not bad, huh? So let's go back up again then because the really interesting thing is Moses says now, what, what is your name? Who are you? When I go back and tell these slaves that they're about to be rescued, who do I tell them is going to rescue them? And the name he's given is Yahweh. And emphatically, this is God's name. This is my name forever. This is the name you shall call me from generation to generation. By the way, Side note, as long as we're doing a number of these, tangent, uh, what's really interesting is that the, what the, the divine voice here in the story says is, I have heard the cry of my people. 
So what happens in the Jesus story is notice a couple of times when Jesus is walking through town and there's somebody crying out, Jesus, son of David, and the disciples are like, oh, don't bother, don't bother with that guy. And Jesus is like, oh, wait, someone just someone just cried out and Jesus hears the cry. These are all echoes of the Exodus story. So uh, now that's one place in the Bible, Exodus, second book, chapter three. Now, I want you, if you picture the story or the picture in the Bible, if you picture the Bible as sort of like a movie, now I want to take you way to the end, to the book of Acts, way, way, way at the end with the Acts in the book of New, in the New Testament. And there's a man named Paul who describes himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews. So he is as Jewish as it comes. And he has actually excelled as a Hebrew of the Hebrews, which means Paul is somebody probably had the entire Hebrew scripture memorized. That wouldn't have been that unusual. He would have grown up knowing this Moses release slaves being liberated story. He would have known this backwards and forwards. So this man named Paul finds himself in Lystra in a Greek world. He's miles from his Jewish upbringing. He finds himself in this Greek city in the book of Acts chapter 14. There's this story, it's in the New Testament, where Paul goes in to a city and there's a man who is, uh, there's a man who has never walked and Paul heals the man. He says, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw that Paul had done, they shouted in the Lysonian language, the gods have come down to us in human form, which I know you've experienced before, right? You go to a strange city and the people say, the gods have come down to us in human form. Paul had a, a com traveling companion named Barnabas. I hope you like that joke, by the way. Barnabas, the people called Zeus, a Greek god, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Uh, by the way, Zeus was known to be really handsome, so they say that Barnabas was Zeus and Paul they call Hermes. If you're Paul, are you like, come on, can't I be the handsome god? Because he was the chief speaker. So the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to Paul. <laughs> so Paul goes to the city. He's miles and miles from his Jewish upbringing. He goes to this city, this man gets healed, everybody says, Paul, you must have done it, you must be a god who's come down to earth. By the way, there is some evidence that there was a story in Lystra about the gods in their history, the gods visiting to them, and they weren't hospitable to the gods. So there was a story in, uh, there was like a mythology in their own history that they hadn't been very welcoming to the gods. So part of this is, uh, a chance for them to make things right, essentially. That's sort of the story outside of the scripture that helps understand why the people are so um, excited. So the people are basically bowing down and they're bringing animals to sacrifice to Paul. So when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and rushed out in the crowd shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We're bringing you good news. Now, what is his good news? At this time and at this place, people offered all kinds of sacrifices, which you see from the story, to the gods, because the job is to keep the gods happy. The gods are angry. Somebody, somewhere, is angry and demands a sacrifice. And what Paul is bringing to these people is a new message that you don't have to live like that, that you don't have to offer bulls and goats and birds to keep somebody somewhere happy, that the divine has, 
is, is okay with you. You are loved. And what he often does in these settings is he tells the Jesus story as a sacrifice story. Jesus was killed. You can think of this as like the last sacrifice ever. He takes this image and he essentially says, I'm here to tell you, you don't have to live like that. You don't have to live wondering where you stand with the gods. With this God, you're loved. You're a child of this God. So he's bringing them this good news. He centers it around the Christ and around Jesus crucified and resurrected. So his good news is rooted in, I want to help you live a better life. You don't have to do this. You can, you can trust this love and then you can extend this love to others. You don't have to live like this. So he says to them, we're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things, these worthless idols. Now, why does he have such a low view of idols? Well, think about it. An idol, a statue in that time, was representative of a god, and so you offered sacrifices to the idol in order to appease the gods. But how do you know when you've offered enough? How do you know when the gods are pleased with you? What if it rains? Should you thank the gods? Because that'll help water your crop. Great. But how do you know when you've thanked the gods enough? What if your kid is sick? Is it something you did? Is the God judging you? Should you offer something to the God to try and maybe get their favor so that your kid won't be sick? Well, how do you know when you've offered enough? When you lay in bed at night knowing that your kid is sick, believing that it's the gods, did the gods make them sick? Is it something I did? How will I ever know? Can you see how religion creates deep, deep, anxiety in the human psyche because you never know where you stand. If things go well, well, now I have to thank the gods. If things aren't going well, well, then apparently I've done something wrong. How will I know if I've ever made things up to the gods? And so what Paul is coming around doing is he is announcing good news. The Jesus message was just simply, you don't have to live with all that anxiety. You can live in love. You can trust that everything you think you need to do has already been done. It isn't about you doing something to make the divine, to earn the divine's favor. It's about the divine favor being extended to you exactly as you are. Can you see why in the ancient world this was good news? And can you see why it's good news now? So these people are bowing down to him and he's trying to tell them, stop it. Stop doing this thing that isn't getting you anywhere. And what he does is he said to them, I'm telling you, turn from all of this anxious, completely worthless way of doing things. And I'm telling you, turn from that to the living. And what's he going to say? I'm telling you to turn from these lifeless idols to the living. What's he gonna, what name is he going to give God? Well, Let's go way, way, way back in the story. With Paul's people, what was the name they had for God? Exactly. Yahweh, right? And what was the thing about Yahweh early on in the story? Yahweh is God's name and is God's name from generation to generation to generation, okay? This God, Yahweh is God's name forever. And see, Paul's a good Jewish man and he knows the Exodus story and he eats kosher and he practices Sabbath, and he studies Torah. He knows about David. He knows about Moses. He knows about the prophets. He knows about the other kings. This dude is a serious Hebrew of Hebrews. So he goes into Lystra, 
do these people in this Greek city know about Yahweh? No, they've never heard the Jewish story. They've never heard that story about God. They don't know about Moses or Egypt or burning bushes. They haven't heard about taking care of the widow, the orphan, the immigrant among you. They haven't heard about King David or the temple or eating kosher or the holy feasts or Sabbath or the prophets. They don't know the name Yahweh. So if he's saying to them, I have a better story for you, and he says to them, I, I got to tell you about Yahweh, they're going to be like, who? Right? So what does he do? What name does he give? Because if he says Yahweh, they're going to look at him like, we have no idea. Who's Yahweh? What are you talking about? So what does he call God? Now, here's the really interesting thing. They do, in this Greek city, have an idea of divine beings. Because they have the Greeks. They have the Greek and Roman gods, Demeter and Zeus and Hermes and Prometheus and Apollo. They have this idea of gods. The Greek word for god, gods, is theos. Small t, small h, e-o-s, theos. That's where the word theology comes from, a word about God. So, or theism. So they have this idea of theoses, gods, small g. So what does Paul do? Well, you have this idea of gods. I'm telling you, you got to leave behind this whole idol thing, and you got to turn to the living, and what does he say? God, but he capitalizes it. Capital T-H-E-O-S. I know you have this idea of divine beings. I'm here to tell you about one divine being that stands over and above all these other divine beings. He doesn't use the name Yahweh that in his tradition was the name of God forever because they wouldn't know what he's talking about. But they do have this idea of gods, and so he takes it and he capitalizes it and says, I know you have this idea of a ton of different gods. I'm here to tell you about the one God that stands above, the one source of it all. And then he goes on and he says this, this God has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. This God provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. So what does he do? He names their experience. He essentially says to them, I wanna to talk to you about the source of the gift you've been receiving and enjoying all along. You have all these statues and idols, but they aren't where it's at. I'm here to talk to you about the source. I'm here to talk to you about the energy and the love and the divine being that holds it all together. I'm here to talk to you about something better, something greater, something more transcendent. So what do you do with this? Because didn't the Bible, isn't it written that God's name is this Yahweh name forever and ever? And yet a good, good Jewish man finds himself in a Greek city realizing that Yahweh, they don't know any of that. They don't have any of that backstory. So a couple of thoughts about God for God part two. First, he begins with their real experience of the world. He doesn't start with an abstract notion of a divine being somewhere else on a cloud. And perhaps you have been in all sorts of discussions with people where you were basically just arguing about giant abstract notions. 
What Paul does is he starts with a their really, really small view of the world, and he invites them to expand. The problem with an idol is it's never satisfied. You have to keep bowing down, you have to keep offering, you have to keep making sure that the divine beings are satisfied, and it's just guilt, 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 anxiety all over the place. You never know if your God or your idol is happy. I'm here, he says, to talk to you about the kindness you've been receiving the whole time. So, second, the God he's talking about here is bigger than any one tribe. Trans-tribal, pan-tribal, as they say. Anybody here ever felt like your tribe had shrunk the divine down to a manageable size? Anybody ever felt like that? Like your people have their God, and you've had this sense, maybe from an early age, like God has to be bigger than this. This God has. Sometimes I'll hear people saying things like, you know, I think God is working in the arts, or I think God is at work in the world. Really? <laughs> you do? <laughs> it's almost like a surprise. Like, wait, God is doing something beyond my people and my religion? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. If you've ever felt like your tribe had shrunk the divine down to a manageable size, what you find in the Bible is the story of a God who whenever a tribe claims God, everybody finds out that God's bigger than even that. Anybody here ever have the sense that if there is a God, that God would have to be bigger than this? The example would be, great example simply would be science. If there is a God, that God would have to enjoy science, right? If there's any sort of struggle between faith and science, then I'm out. Can't do it. Cannot do it. If there is a God, that God has to love science and be high-fiving scientists. Well done. Great discovery. That's actually the story of the Bible. Whenever people create a religion or tribe or school or way that creates boundaries for the divine, what inevitably happens is that those boundaries get transcended by the divine being who's bigger than whatever it is people created to try and contain that divine being. That's what happens over and over again. God is bigger than the Jewish story. God is bigger than the Greek Greek story. If there is a divine being, and I know some of you have a problem with that, I totally get it, but if there is some sort of source of it all, it will always be bigger than whatever little systems we cooked up. And that's actually one of the central themes that keeps coming up in the Bible, which is so fascinating to me when people talk about the narrow God of the Bible. Have you ever read this book? Every single time in this book, when somebody says, here is God, then a couple pages later or a couple chapters or books later, actually, no, the whole thing is even bigger. And then one thought here at the end. If you've ever needed liberation, you're not alone. If you've ever felt enslaved, you're not alone. If you've ever needed freedom and release and rescue, you aren't alone. And what this story is about is about power, energy, love, goodness, and intention moving towards us in our favor on behalf of all of us in all of the ways we desperately need help. So what this story keeps doing is it shows human beings 
nasty, brutal, bigoted, violent, tribal, exclusive, small human beings consistently tasting these little tiny bits, having little glimpses of something so much bigger and better. And as the story unfolds, it's just a little bit more and a little bit more and a little, and it's almost, a friend of mine says, it's two steps forward, one step back, which sounds a lot like my story. Maybe it sounds like your story. You decide that you're gonna be more loving and the next day you say something to a friend, you're like, I can't believe I just said that, I'm so sorry. Anybody know what I'm talking about? It's like you get this glimpse of, I wanna give my energies to the world. I wanna help everybody who's hurting. And then the next day you wound somebody. Like, ah, and yet you keep going because something has been planted within you. And so what you see in talking about God is you see human beings waking up bit by bit by bit. Do we have a long way to go? Of course. But don't be surprised when you read stories about people waking up and right there in among those stories of people waking up, of evolving human consciousness and enlightenment, you also find stories of grief and greed and destruction and death and violence and murder. Of course you're going to see that. We see that now. But the much more compelling to me thing to me is how come these ideas resonate with you and I at a deep, deep level? How come something within us says, yes, yes, destructive, mean, nasty power, the playground bully can't win. No, I, I, I refuse to believe that the oppressor gets the last word. I refuse to believe that addiction gets the last word. I refuse to believe that Wall Street greed gets the last word. I refuse to believe that the abusive husband gets the last word. I refuse to believe that despair gets the last word. Something within me wants to believe that there are powers and forces beyond the everyday little deaths we see us all around us. Something deep within me wants to believe that terrorists in Paris don't get the last word. Something within me wants to believe that People who rape women in Syria don't get the last word. Anybody with me on that? That when you read these stories, these stories ask questions. What do you believe about the deepest forces of the universe? Are they aligned against human suffering or are they on our side? And when you move towards those who are hurting, oppressed, hungry, being abused, and you move to stand with them and to help and to rescue, you are lining yourself up with the deepest forces of the universe. And early, early on, you see Moses, and you see this story begin to unfold. I have heard the cry of my people. So, so to conclude, when we talk about God, if we're just talking about abstract ideas, I'm going to get bored really, really fast. If you're going to talk about systematic concepts and just essentially rearranging the furniture in our brains, I'm going to get bored really fast because now we're just being brainy together. But if we're going to talk about how do you live in the world, 
and whose side are you on? And what are you going to do with your energies? And do the mean, nasty bullies win? Does death win? Does cancer win? Does Ebola win? Does AIDS win? Or are there powers at work in the universe stronger than even death, terrorism, the grave? Are there powers at work that can take even the worst human suffering and in some way transform, envelop, embrace, and move through to bring something new? So when we talk about God, nice, neat ideas about do you believe in the Christian God or do you believe in the whatever God? Ugh, what do those beliefs do in the real world for people who need it the most? And if that person's God oppresses women, I'm out. And if that person's God simply creates a system that justifies greed and exploitation and financial structures that make the poor poor, I'm out. But if the God that person is talking about guides and empowers and directs them to act in beautiful, loving, redemptive, inclusive ways, now that's what I'm talking about when I talk about God. And that, my friend, is God part two. Grace and peace. <laughs>